Welcome to Film Inquiry, the latest. This is a podcast series tackling the latest movie news, movie trends, and movie releases. I'm your host, Jesse Nussman. And on the other line, this week, she lives her life one mile at a time. It's Emily Wheeler. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. I go a little bit faster than a quarter mile at a time. Yes, a full mile oh, at a time. Yes, yeah, a full mile at a time. Did I butcher the quote? It's been so long since I've I've seen which which you are the Fast and Furious expert. I feel like so so which which movie is that that quote from? It comes from a few of the very early ones. So back when they okay. were actually street racing movies, right? <laughs> it comes ba- from back those. when they were back when they were actually about cars and not you know globe-trotting plots and bombs rolling down streets and super criminals. The cars were real, at least partially, you know? <laughs> Didn't have bombs strapped to them. People were actually in locations and not just sort of like some studio space here in Atlanta. <laughs> there was one that looked real bad. We'll get to that, though. <laughs> we'll get to that. Uh, Emily, uh, welcome back. It's been a while since I've had you on, um, but this is kind of the perfect episode. I, I sort of months out had your name just sort of written in for for this episode um because i guess it was a couple of years ago at this point uh you and christy strauss were on an episode that we did about kind of the the 20th anniversary of the fast and furious franchise we talked about all the movies uh including f9 i believe was the one coming out at that point um and i would say we aren't going to go as in-depth, I think, into this entire franchise as we did on that episode, but um, we'll be sure to sort of like link to it in the description box, and uh, anyone who is curious on more Fast and Furious talk can uh, fire that episode up, because it was a really fun conversation. But now we are at movie 10, which is technically movie 11, if you count Hobbs and Shaw, and this is one of the the biggest, most expensive movies of the summer. Um, it is at, I think, an interesting point for this franchise. It is now fully, fully morphed at this point into, like, a globally important piece of IP franchise building. Um, we talked about a few years ago just how funny it is that this started as, like, a ripoff of Point Break that was about people, like, stealing DVD players off trucks. <laughs> and... And now it is in, uh, you know, it, it this this new movie. I think it is fair to say is is trying to be something on the same level as like an Avengers Infinity War or something like that. That's really the movie I thought of the entire time while watching this in terms of the scale, how much it is trying to wrap its arms around an entire mythology. That I think we can we can talk about whether or not there really is much of a mythology for the, these movies to wrap their arms around. Um, and and sort of pit nearly every character that's ever been in one of these movies against kind of like a big ultimate bad guy. Um, would you say that's kind of an, an accurate representation of where we are in this series? I would say that is accurate without getting into the way Fast 10 complicates some of that. I did find mm-hmm. that Fast 10 kind of interestingly complicates some of the things that they have done before. Some of the things I really love about it and some of the things that they changed, I actually really enjoyed about it. Um, you were kind of questioning the whether it, there is mythology to this movie, and I think I get what you're uh, going for there. I think it's a question of, is, is mythology the same as um, timeline? Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously the timeline, they don't care about any of that. Um, but I would argue that there is very strong mythology to this that they start complicating. 
um, in this movie. As you were kind of referencing, they definitely have become superheroes, and I think that yes. changes a little bit in this movie, I would argue. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, it's a coincidence that Universal is kind of like the one big studio that doesn't quite have like a comic book property to their name and have sort of like retrofitted this into like, this This can kind of be our, our thing. Um, I think before we get into the movie, you know, had you on last year because you wrote this big piece about these movies as camp, essentially. And I'm curious just for our listeners, if you can kind of like elaborate on that a little bit, what you mean about that. And kind of what what it what it is about this series that you think is sort of quintessential camp as as we come to know. Yeah. So if you go back to the um, original definition of camp, um, it really is quite vague, and it's become I think as people have used it actually more restrictive in a way that um, isn't necessarily true to the term. The original definition of it is actually um, basically just saying that it is uh, the theater of life. It is about blowing up the way we perform certain aspects of ourselves um, in everyday life. So you make, a, you make uh, an even more grandiose performance out of that to emphasize that everyone is doing a performance. Um, what these movies are doing, and why I think a lot of people don't register them as camp, is because um, basically with their camp, they are targeting masculinity. Whereas normally, I think when we think of camp, it's a, they're targeting femininity. You think of like drag queens and thing, things, I think, is the most common idea of camp. Um, well, this is essentially drag kings, except it's Vin Diesel is a drag king. I would argue. Was that uh, a pun right there? <laughs> Since they are drag racers. I'm bad at puns. If I ever do a pun, it's unintentional. But yes, I, I would argue essentially Vin Diesel is basically a drag king in these movies, um, as is a lot of characters in these movies. Um, and I think that is one of the things that they complicate really well in this movie and kind of update with the times. So I'm going to do my best to kind of go through the plot of this movie. We will get into spoilers. I think we can, you know, talk more specifically about the the ending to this movie, which I think is probably the biggest thing to throw spoiler alerts up on. Um, but essentially, Dominic Toretto and his ever-increasing family find themselves being hunted down by the son of the gangster that they ripped off back in fast and furious five um this movie even opens pretty much with this climax of fast and furious five um and has like through the power of editing and green screen sort of reinserted this new character played by jason momoa in into that final climactic sequence um and as i said this this is kind of it reminded me a lot of Avengers infinity war in the sense that you have this large ensemble of characters kind of being sectioned off into their own little, you know, alternate storylines, but essentially all coming up against this big ultimate bad guy played by Momoa. And this meaning to be this massive culmination of this 10 movie, or if you count Hobbs and Shaw, 11 movie storyline that they've been building and sort of have this be the, the final test that the Toretto family needs to come up against. Um, and every step of the way, sort of as they they think they have outsmarted the Momoa character, he somehow gets the upper hand. And, you know, it, it really is kind of like the, the movie deflects how uh, big and dangerous your new uh, superhero villain is. I, I did a better job of explaining that than I thought I would do. Um, <laughs> I was really worried after stepping out of this movie. I was like, God, it's going to be 30 minutes for me just to explain stuff. But we can get more into like 
individual bits and sequences and who's paired up with who and stuff like that. So I'm not too worried about us. But um, first, I want to know, uh, even though I kind of already know, because you and I follow each other on Letterboxd, I think, what you think of this movie. But um, Emily, give me your thoughts on what you thought about the 10th Fast and Furious movie. I think this is definitely a movie that is trying to figure out where they're going. They're making a big turn here, I think, with the franchise. Um, I don't keep up too much with like movie news. I've heard arguments that it is wrapping up the franchise, um, or is the beginning of the end of the franchise. However, this movie does not act like it's the beginning of the end of the franchise. I would argue this movie is basically setting the stage for another generation to take over i don't think they're going yeah, to end I, with these guys <laughs> no i've i've i think the plan i had heard was this is like part of a two-part finale kind of like what marvel did with those avengers movies although now vin diesel is sort of like flaunting on the red carpet that like universal loved this movie so much that now we're gonna it's part one of three and you need a three-part story so i i'm kind of with you i don't i'm calling like shenanigans for like I'm sure they'll keep making these movies as long as they rake in money at the box office, but continue. Yeah. And Vin Diesel will keep making these movies. He loves right. these movies. <laughs> Vin Diesel does not want to let go of this franchise. Let me tell you. Um, that being said, um, I do think as it tries to kind of redefine where it's going and redefine certain like key aspects of the series, I would say, um, it does get a little wobbly. Um, I think it's a slight step back from F9. I think I'm a little higher on F9 than a lot of other people are on the series. Um, but I would say you're still talking way better than like, six and eight where they kind of lost their way a little bit and we're kind of in another kind of redefinition period there um so i think of the latter films kind of as they have redefined themselves into as you were saying kind of a superhero kind of genre i think this is up there among the better ones um i say that because i actually like when these movies like have become in on the joke and wink at themselves i think this is a movie that is entirely just a wink at the audience like it, it, it is based, it is almost a meta movie entirely about just joking about the fast and furious and it knows exactly what people want from these movies and is still delivering that while trying to kind of twist it a little bit. Um, but uh, don't know that that quite fills out the runtime of the film, which is quite long. As you were talking about trying to summarize the film, I had the same feeling when I walked out. I was like, what was the plot of this movie? What happened? I had to go back through and read through. I was like, yes, this is beat by beat everything that happened because it's really not important, I would argue. No, no, no. This is kind of in the like, you know, mission impossible sphere of sort of like there is a plot but it's just sort of like an excuse to get from like set piece to set piece or for like this character to interact with this character um i, I think to your point about like this being like a very very winking movie i i would agree that this is i, I talked about when we did our last fast and furious podcast like this series has this real like spectrum of tone and i think if you know i would say like the fourth movie is maybe maybe like the furthest that's gone into like total self-seriousness and like really brooding and moody. And this is probably the furthest in the other direction of it. It is just like a full on cartoon essentially. And is like really, really goofy is not taking itself seriously at all. I think if you like these movies for the sort of over the top insanity like ridiculousness um there is sort of a trend going around twitter i think like a week before this movie came out about people saying like 
what was the moment that this series jumped the shark and people were all like tweeting all these like random clips of just like somebody is thrown from one car and then gets hit by two other cars and then just sort of like rolls up and their like hair is perfectly quaffed and they like hop back in their own vehicle or something like that. Um, if you enjoy that aspect of this series, I, I think, you know, you'll, you'll get what you want from this 10th installment. Um, I'm personally someone that like, for me, my favorite run of these movies is five, six, and seven. And those to me are the three that sort of find, I think for, for me personally, that sort of ideal balance between not taking themselves too seriously, but not so far into cartoonish absurdity that I kind of feel like the stakes are sort of removed a little bit. Um, and I, I generally, my, my feeling about these movies, like there's some of them that I'm a bit mixed on. There's some, I really don't like. There's some that I think are a ton of fun. Um, I think this is like among my least favorite of them, which I think will make this a fun conversation considering, um, how much fun you had with it. I, I kind of described it to someone after as like, this kind of feels like the Fast and Furious movie written by ChatGPT. Like this kind of, in in this time when with the writer's strike and stuff, we're talking about like studios and uh, networks wanting to like write scripts based off of like, what's a recognizable property and just what are like buzzwordy things that people like about it that we can throw together. This kind of felt like the most... Um, sort of going through the motions and kind of like grasping at just sort of like vague ideas about like what would be in a fast like if you were just describing a fast and furious movie to aliens this feels like the kind of random collection of things that it doesn't quite hold together at all but it's sort of like yeah that's kind of the general vibe of this movie um and we'll get into a lot of the performances there's so many characters in this movie i feel like the one person Maybe with the exception of Vin Diesel, who it still is pretty funny, like thinks he's playing King Lear in every single movie. <laughs> um, Jason Momoa is really... I, I cannot wait to talk to you about this performance because I don't know that it's... I think it defies our binary term of good or bad performance. Could someone immediately afterwards was like, how's Momoa in there? And I, and I just sort of responded with, He's making a lot of really, really big choices, and I'm not quite sure it it works as a performance, but he is he is undeniably like doing the most out of any person in this movie. And it it is it is an energy of some sort that is like livening up his scenes, even though it kind of feels like one of those performances where you just went to the craft services table and like put on a bunch of bling and like funny outfits. And I, I kind of described this. I've been describing the performance to people as like, it's a little Johnny Depping Pirates of the Caribbean. It's a little the Joker. I kind of weirdly thought a lot about Robin Williams in the birdcage while I was watching it, maybe because of those like flowy uh, shirts that he's wearing. Um, it's, it's a very flamboyant over the top performance where he is having a lot of fun. Um, and I, I can't, I don't know if it's good, but it is, it is certainly something to behold. What, what did you think about him in this? You are dancing around and using every single term that critics use when they cannot identify camp. What he is doing is uh -huh. camp. He is doing theater. Yes. It is theater within theater. <laughs> so I think he fits in perfectly. I think he does give uh -huh. the best performance of this. I think he's the one who knows best what movie he mm -hmm. is in. 
Um, I don't, no one else is really doing it at that level. I do think he is, um, to my larger idea, I kind of already talked about, I said that this is masculine camp. He is obviously bringing the most camp in this. Um, he is doing a very masculine energy, but a very modern kind of masculinity that I think complicates mm-hmm. everything very well. As you were saying, a lot of flowy outfits there. He paints his nails very um, yeah. pointedly in a scene. It's very like gender androgynous, kind of. You know, he's, it's, it's, I, I would I, not I would be argue... surprised if we learned like, oh yeah, he is, you know, bisexual or something like that in like a later movie. It'd be like, oh, okay. Or maybe he yeah, just, I... you know, likes his satin shirts i don't know exactly he's the kind of person that like if you encountered them in real life like you would just have to ask maybe they would consider themselves queer maybe not it all depends um on how they choose to interpret what they are doing and what they are trying to communicate with that and i think you know maybe to think about this a little too hard but i think his performance perfectly shows like if you have trouble grasping the difference between gender and gender expression his performance is doing this. To me, mm-hmm. that is a hugely masculine performance. Like, there's, it oozes masculinity to me. And yet it has these expressions that you would typically label as feminine, like the painted nails, like a lot of these flowy outfits. Like, there is some feminine movement to his body at times. And yet, yeah, he has as pigtails I said, just, at one point, I think. Yeah, pigtails mm-hmm. at one point. I think this is an energy that Momoa has always kind of had as kind of a performer, if you wanted to tap into that or not. And yet he is also an incredibly masculine man. Like, I don't think you could ever get away from that with him. Um, no. I think it just is, is a part of him, he, even when he does start playing with kind of a feminine attire or expression, um, which is, I think is such a wonderful complication to this movie to this series in particular, because for a while there, their idea of kind of complicating uh, masculinity was just bringing in different type of alpha males. And I think in a way he's an alpha male, but it's a very different kind than they have ever seen before. And it is not just trying to be kind of the most masculine. It is, it is kind of trying to play with redefining a masculinity or at least redefining it in a way that has never been seen in this franchise rarely seen in a blockbuster level movie like you just normally don't get this um really the only times you would get this in like big american movies is when you have just kind of a queer coded villain i think is he could play close to that but i would argue that again i don't know that he's queer i don't actually read that as queer coding i think he's just a little more playful as a person and doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily follow these rules or the way I read his character is, uh, again, like, I don't think he would consider himself very feminine. I would think that character would consider himself very masculine, despite doing all of these things that other people might label as feminine, which I think is just an incredibly interesting and uh, much more heady complication than I would expect to see in a Fast and Furious movie and uh, more thoughtful than I think people give these films credit for. Yeah, I I, I think regardless on how you interpret his his character, he he is undeniably like the person having the most fun in the movie and and i almost wish like everyone else in the movie kind of rose like 15 percent more to his energy level um i i think kind of my issue with sort of feeling like people are sort of going through the motions is it everyone feels a little like almost too comfortable in their roles the one other person who it does seem like is having a lot of fun though his performance is a bit jarring is John Cena, um, who is the villain in the last movie. And I believe I would have to go back and listen to that podcast because I did not watch F9 before going to see this one. I believe you and I's kind of like big 
complaint about him in that movie, correct me if I'm wrong, was sort of like he was almost too brooding and like that's not really John Cena's skill set. Although then it becomes this weird catch 22 of like now that he is hashtag family, um, you know, he gets to be like fun comedic relief uncle and it feels like a total 180 performance from how he was in the previous movie but also it better suits him as a performer and he seems like he's having more fun and is more fun to watch in this movie um i don't know what were your kind of your thoughts about like a lot of the other members in the cast because i would say you know we'll we'll talk about there's someone in particular that's new to the cast that i i we need to have a big conversation about because i'm 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 a little concerned but i think for our like returning people like the energy between like tyrese and ludicrous felt a little sort of like shruggish at this point um you know charlie's throne i love charlie's throne but has just like never worked for me in these movies i think they finally got her to have scenes with other people because the other in the other movie she's in she's like in a control room in a plane and is just like talking to people on the phone so i'm i'm glad she got some face to face interaction um michelle rodriguez i think you know st- stable as always i i just felt like everyone has kind of settled into sort of their familiar character beats with this movie and and almost wanted wanted a if the purpose of this was to kind of build us into a climax i kind of wanted some of those personalities to be pushed a little bit if that makes sense yeah i see what you mean um i i would agree with a lot of that um i i agree charlie theron has never quite i think really bitten into it like um jason momoa has in a way that would really make her character pop I think she's just so good and has such a screen presence that it's never a total detriment. But yeah, she, she's mm. never she's never quite bitten into being an evil character like I maybe would have wanted her to. Um, she's also, up until this movie, finally she has some decent hair. She's always been given just terrible wigs in all of the movies. Or I think she actually cut her hair for F9. I think that was a real haircut, if I recall. Uh-huh. <laughs> The bowl cut. Um, D- didn't she have dreadlocks in one of them? She had dreadlocks in her first movie. That's she right. had white lady dreadlocks. She did. It was awful. <laughs> there's a there is a joke online. I can't remember where it is. Uh, who, who said it? But about uh, Mama Mia two that the entire series is just a <laughs> is just an excuse to um, humiliate Stellan Skarsgård. <laughs> if you've ever nice. seen those movies, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> particularly the second one, I was like, particularly I was like. If, she, if they had given her another awful haircut, I would start thinking that these latter movies are just becoming an excuse to humiliate Charlize Theron and she just keeps coming back. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of like that weird, there's like a weird period in the 90s where Samuel Jackson, just like every single uh, performance he would do, he needed some sort of like goofy haircut or something like that. As to the rest of the characters, I, I think it has to be stated that this series has become just a wonderful paycheck movies for uh, Academy Award winning actresses. In particular, there is four in this movie. <laughs> you have yep. the aforementioned Charlize Theron. You have, um, oh, what's her name? Who is Jason Statham's mom? <laughs> Helen, Helen Mirren coming into yes. one scene um, that's very much like you can set up a green screen monitor in my backyard. I'm, I'm, you're, I'm doing you a favor. Hel- Helen Mirren is definitely here for a paycheck, and and because Vin Diesel really loves her, obviously. Mm-hmm. If you ever seen F9 and this movie again, he, she's just here to have one scene with Vin Diesel and then move on. That's fine. They like talking to each other apparently, and she will take the paycheck. 
Um, you now have the addition of Rita Moreno again for one single scene as the previ- previously unmentioned grandmother in this uh, apparently right. very important family-oriented <laughs> film series. <laughs> Who cares? Who is mad about Rita Moreno randomly showing up and getting a paycheck in a Fast and Furious movie? Go for it. And then uh, a character we're probably going to spend more time on later, it sounds like, uh, is Brie Larson as a new character introduced named Tess. Um, We will get to her. I think there's a lot to talk about there. I think that's who you were referring to earlier. As to the rest of the cast kind of uh, playing their own kind of standard roles and not pushing themselves too much, I can't argue with that. I don't think this movie pushes anything too far. Um, pushes itself very far much at all outside of uh, Jason Momoa's character. I just have a very soft spot for Michelle Rodriguez. I think her persona fits, just kind of her vibe fits in perfectly with these movies. I don't think she'll ever do anything better than these movies. I'm always kind of sad when she doesn't have much of a role. And again, she doesn't have much of a role in this movie. Uh, she she's always been one of those. Pe- yeah. She's always been one of those people that it's just like, I, 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 where it's just like, can we give her just more things to do? Cause I just like love whenever she pops up in, in something like, I, I don't know what your feelings are about the, the Steve McQueen movie Widows that she was in, but like, remember seeing that movie and being like, "Oh my god!" Like, can, see, this is what you are missing out on Hollywood. Like, she can do so. I mean, she's a great action star, but like, look, she can also give like an incredible, like, in depth performance too, and is like an amazing actress while also being this like amazing physical performer at the same time. Yeah, and and to be fair to her, one of the few things I do follow in movie news is that she was very adamant about the midpoint of this Fast and Furious uh, franchise when she started coming back of really saying, like, you have to write the female characters better. Like, these are getting embarrassing. And Mm -hmm. I think think that push by her has done a lot to kind of move the series in a better direction in in that realm. Um, As far as the rest of the cast, I do have to disagree with you about what uh, Ludacris and who all is it? It's Ludacris, Tyrese Gibson, Natalie Emanuel are doing as a trio. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have put uh, they put Sung Kang there with them as kind of a fourth. But I think uh, in several movies you have had uh, Tyrese, Ludacris, and Natalie Emanuel kind of being a trio. And I think they have actually become my favorite part of these movies. I think they're dynamic together. I think they added her in as kind of a foil to these two kind of slightly immature guys. And I think it just became comedy gold. So like, mm-hmm. are they kind of just there to make the same jokes over and over again? Sure. But I love those jokes. I love that dynamic between the three. And I think um, Han kind of slides into that dynamic pretty well and does not throw anything off. And I think everyone just likes Han. And I'm sorry, I will continue to do that throughout this entire thing. I will flip between uh, actors' names and the characters' names. They're all the same to me. It's the same. They're just playing themselves. It's all good. It's all good. Um, <laughs> let's... Let's have the Brie Larson conversation, um, which which maybe is 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 beyond this movie even. Um, Brie Larson, of course, shows up in this movie as this new character that is essentially the daughter of Kurt Russell's character. Which, again, forgive me, it's been a while since I rewatched these. Did Kurt Russell die in one of these movies, or is Kurt Russell just like? I'm not coming back for this anymore. You guys got me for two movies or however long it was. I like could not remember. I was like, is did they write this new character because he 
they killed him off in a previous movie or did they bring this character in because Kurt Russell just said no this time? Whether anyone is ever dead in a Fast and Furious movie that, is a question is in and of itself. So, right, Again, Han is here. Han like. and another example we'll get into in spoiler section. Han is here. He is a safe one to discuss. Once Han came back, they threw in the idea of anyone ever being dead. Uh, to my knowledge, I do not have a perfect memory. He is still alive. They okay. reference a lot that he is still alive in this movie. He has just disappeared. Okay. Uh, interpret that as you will. Uh, I, I think he's going to come back. I, I would be surprised if he does not come back. I, I feel like he was kind of the guy that's going to swoop in in the next movie to help clean everything up now that they've mm-hmm. messed. They spent the first movie, you know, kind of messing everything up. There's going to be two connected movies. Now he's going to swoop in in the uh, second movie as kind of like the backup to start helping them clean up now that they uh, have had their asses handed to them by the yeah. <laughs> So Brie Larson, I think if we went back like 10 years ago, I think an actress I had a lot of stock in, short Sarin short term twelve was like, we got one. This girl's gonna be one of the like signature actresses of her generation. She won that Oscar for Room, which is even a movie I'm not crazy about. I think is like solid, but was was like great. My money's coming in, my investment's doing great. My girl's going places, and then after that, it feels like she's gotten kind of sucked into the franchise system and the world of nissan commercials and i'm just a little concerned emily because i feel like the brie larson stock is not is not doing well and even like and and it's not necessarily a knock against i cannot tell if if maybe i overestimated her as a movie star or if hollywood or her agent are just not getting her good roles. Like I, the, the place where I feel like she should be at is, and I'm sure Brie Larson is laughing at the other end. If she's listening to this, of just sort of like, I have millions of dollars and this moron is just talking into a microphone in his apartment complex. Um, but you know, she, I always thought of her like in lineage of, because she's so outspoken politically too, like in the lineage of someone like Jane Fonda. And I think like, Where's like her movie where she's like a war photographer in the Vietnam War, and it's it's like a big movie star vehicle, but it's also like this this oh, historical hold epic. Hold on, do you not remember the King Kong movie? Well, that, that was gonna be my that was go, that was what I was leading up to. Is like that's the kind of movie I would want for her. Is like yeah, it can be this like searing political drama, but it's also this adventure movie, and it's this movie star vehicle for her. But like. If she wants to do that, it has to be Kong Skull Island, where she's like one of 20 people in that movie that is just sort of getting bounced around by King Kong. And, you know, I know Captain Marvel made a ton of money. I'm someone who, like, I don't even feel feel like that character has been sort of like, maybe I'll be proven wrong with the sequel coming up, but I don't feel like that character has even given her enough to do as a performer. I'm just a little concerned, Emily, because... She's in this movie and doesn't seem to have much to do. And I was a little baffled when I walked out and really, really concerned for where we are in the, in, in the Brie Larson journey. I, I'm very, very sad at how much I agree with you on basically everything that you have said so far. I have been a fan of Brie Larson actually since she was on television in a series called United States of Terra. 
which if anything is mostly remembered as a uh, vehicle for um, why am I blanking on her name right now? Uh, it's basically someone else's vehicle. Um, she was playing a character with dissociative identity disorder. Brie Larson was her Tony Collette. Tony Collette, thank you. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, yes, Tony Collette. Uh, it, it, it was a vehicle for Tony Collette to basically play a mom with dissociative identity disorder. It, it, stunning performance. Like, you literally go watch that series just to see, again, watch anything Tony Collette is in, but particularly that one shows her ability to just gen- literally mor- morph between characters as that, uh, so playing someone with dissociative identity disorder requires you to do. However, within that series, her eldest daughter is played by Brie Larson, who is supposed to be a teenager at the time. I imagine when filming, she was like early 20s. It was it was um, really early in her career. She is so good in that show. Like, even in that show, I was like, oh, like, she has been given a character that is written as, like, very one-dimensional kind of angsty teen girl, rebellious teen girl, and she does so much with it. It is such an interesting performance in where she takes that character in that series brief run. And then she did the things like you are talking about where she, I think that kind of became her calling card. And then she was able to land movies like Short Term 12. I think Room is a stunning performance. I think the movie is a little shaky. I think her performance Same. is stunning in that movie. Mm. Like, <laughs> um, I think it deserves the 5 million awards she got for that movie. And then I feel the same way. Suddenly she decided, uh, perhaps this is just giving her the agency that I want to imagine that she has, she has decided to do blockbuster movies. And mm-hmm. to be clear, there is nothing wrong with going and doing blockbuster movies. You can give nope. great performances in a blockbuster movie. I think she's very bad at them, though. <laughs> I think she's very bad at doing blockbuster movies. Uh, we, we are praising Jason Momoa very heavily in uh, this episode, and particularly for his performance in Fast and Furious. I think he is the kind of person who's very good at giving performances in a blockbuster. I think he has the charisma. I think he has the way to sort of do this a little bit more overblown, but still have it feel semi-natural to, to make it feel like it is a character within this like level of a movie and level of reality that we are operating at. And I think Brie Larson, I mean, we are five, six blockbuster movies in with her. Mm. I am feeling comfortable saying she does not know how to modulate that. I, I, I cringed through, I was sadly... I was so sad, but I cringed so hard through her Captain Marvel, whatever her character is, movie in the MCU. Mm. I thought her performance was the worst part of that movie. I feel like every time she rolls into as as that character, it's like she's coming up and just giving a high a thumbs up, and she's like, "Isn't this great?" and just kind of walks by the camera. And I was like, <laughs> "You guys are supposed to be playing a character, right? Like you can't just that- like." That's kind of how happy all the time. Like that's not a thing. Yeah, that's kind of how a lot of her blockbuster performances feel they feel very like posed and almost like i'm i'm i like i gotta do this for the girl boss poster or something like that and like i think she can be such a like vibrant and funny and natural actor in you know you know she can give these great like naturalistic performances in short term 12 and room or like i think she's really funny in like the few scenes she's in and like scott pilgrim or um wasn't she in 21 drump street or um the what is the train wreck the amy schumer movie where she is like amy schumer's sister and i kind of thought was the best part of that it was like i kind of would be down if like she was the lead of this movie i think it would be even even better um and and so i th- i think she 
it, you're right. It just doesn't seem like it's in her zone, her, her sort of sweet spot as a performer. And she always just feels kind of like stilted in these movies. And then it seems extra worse when it's a movie like this, where the character kind of doesn't really make sense. And it just sort of seems like a piece that's there to like add exposition and sort of show up at a convenient time when, you know, someone needs a grenade to be launched or something like that. Yeah, I will say before turning fully back to uh, her in Fast and Furious, just as a little caveat, uh, I don't think her career is totally on a total downswing right now with this turn. Um, I would like to encourage everyone, there's a movie she directed recently in the past couple of years. I believe it is sitting on Netflix. It is called Unicorn Store. I hardly I anyone saw it. This. It is a tiny little movie. Again, she directed it. She also stars mm. in it. It is basically just about, go be your little weirdo self. Like, that's basically, it's a very light movie, but it does get back to just letting her kind of, she's much better as a performer. I think it's a fairly good directorial debut as well. So, I mean, I'm sure she was able to do that because she's made however many millions of dollars doing all these blockbuster movies. So, right. you know, in the she hasn't completely abandoned smaller movies yet. I think just no one is aware that that movie exists. So, please, if you would like to see Brie Larson doing something a little better in the last few years, Unicorn Store, I believe it is on that. It was a Netflix movie, so it should still be on Netflix. Um, however, the other good thing here is that she's not in F <laughs> Fast Nut 10 very much at all. Uh, her character, I... Is entirely unnecessary, as far as I could tell. No. I feel like you could do every, you could get this plot to work without her. I don't know why she's here. She's barely here. She's kind of in a couple scenes, and then she gets shot and goes to the hospital. <laughs> like, right. Great. I was looking, like as I said when I walked out of this movie, I was like, I forget what the plot was. I had to go and look and read through the plot, and I was like, the only plot point she actually makes differences is that she takes Letty to Cipher. Like that's it. Yeah. The only thing where she actually affects the plot. Everything else is just like, eh, whatever. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And and I remember it being such a big like news item when she was cast in this movie. And so then it was just extra baffling for me when, like you said, she's in th probably like three, three or four very, very small scenes, m majority of which like are very little, you know, have very little effect on the actual story is just sort of her popping in to like give a piece of information and then like pop off screen i was rooting so hard at the after the casting announcement for her to play charlie Theron's sister and for them both to have terrible haircuts throughout the movie like that's what i wanted from this casting news that'd be fun i did not get either that <laughs> i thought that would have been a great running joke so yeah i mean she's i can't even say she's misused i think she just needs to like i think she needs to stop doing blockbusters i just don't think it's in her wheelhouse and that's fine Many actors are not able to do everything. I just don't think she's very good at doing blockbusters. Everyone just move on, please. <laughs> so the next thing I wanted to kind of bring up to you is it's a little bit of a wider conversation beyond the Fast and Furious movies, but I think is applicable to this one. Um, I kind of had a feeling watching this movie that th this, is, this is sort of the latest entry in the kind of red notice trend for me of like, a big blockbuster with tons of movie stars is this like globetrotting adventure comedy. Um, but it doesn't look like they shot this in real locations. 
It doesn't look like any of the people are in those locations, let alone are in the same scene as each other. And the whole movie kind of has this like flat digital look to it where it just sort of looks like people standing in front of green screens and are very flatly lit. Like the other recent example of this that I saw, which I was just like, I, we can't even talk about this movie on the podcast because this, this, this would literally be a waste of time for everyone is ghosted the, um, on a day armis, uh, Chris Evans rom-com for, for Apple, um, that, might be the worst movie I've seen all year. Um, but but this this had a similar look to that. And it just sort of like, is this a trend that you're noticing in movies like this? Where it just sort of seems like, hey, we got like a bunch of famous people together. And it's meant to be this like globetrotting adventure movie. But, you know, everything, there's there's a fakeness to all of it. And it isn't, you know, you go back and watch like a movie from the forties or the fifties. And like, it's, it's obvious there's matte paintings and stuff in the background, but let this trend I'm noticing doesn't even have that kind of like, like handmade aesthetic quality to, to that, that you, you kind of just buy into as just part of the magic of the movie. It just sort of looks cheap. I don't know. Am I sounding crazy? Because I feel like I'm noticing this in like multiple movies every year. I think it's definitely a trend. Um, I think other people have picked up on this as well. You, you kind of pointed out Red Notice being a key one there. I think a lot of people are starting to kind of signal that that movie, particularly for streamers, they're really starting to mm-hmm. do those kind of movies of let's just get a couple stars and then put them on a green screen and maybe they shoot a few days and we'll call that a movie. And that'll, you know, we can say we have a movie of theirs uh, that you can only see on our uh, platform. Um, I think it's a little unfair to call put this movie, put Fast 10 in that category. I think there's a lot more of the budget on display here. <laughs> um, I, I think it, I do think it is very spotty. I think mm-hmm. weirdly the opening where they put Jason Momoa into these scenes from uh, Fast 5, those look amazing. Like I could not, I was watching those and I could not believe it because as you were saying, like cameras have changed since then. Like the texture mm-hmm. of the of the uh, what you're watching, like the actual screen image, is different than in a modern thing. And he did not stick out. Like it was, it was very well. Done. I also think they did a little bit of the aging on him too, in order to fit him into that, those scenes. I was very impressed watching those. I was like, ooh, they spent a lot of money and did this really well. Like if you didn't, if you weren't thinking about it, I would never notice that this was a reshot with him pasted into things. Um, but then you get to other parts of the movie where the cars become gummy CGI, which is mm-hmm. really disappointing for these movies. There is one shot. I mean, this, these movies have always have, or at least for the last back half, have defied physics. But um, they made them look better than this. Uh, there was a shot in kind of the Rome uh, chase where yeah. Letty is on her motorcycle and she's just like a weird pivot on the motorcycle and it's such a break of the laws of physics and such bad CGI combination that you're just like, oh, that looks terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also the end, uh, not the end, but the second to last scene. The one, the last yeah. scene with Dom is all I'll say in case. Are, are you talking about the one on the thing. on the dam? Yeah, sort of. After okay, because kind of I, I was going to say, if at it's, end, if it's the what the, the car dam. is doing on the dam, Not, I think are, that's in the previews and we're fair to mention what yes. the car is physically so, doing on the dam. 
let's just say there is a damn scene. Yes, uh-huh. towards the end. The car goes down. Dom does not die. Let's just say Dom does not die. I don't think yeah. that's a shocker. <laughs> so Dom is like supposed to be standing on a shore or some sort. Oh, and I'm okay. like, this man yes. is not wet. This man is, I don't even know if he's standing on a green screen. Like it is the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> like genuinely that scene, I was like, I do not buy that he is anywhere in the world except for on a studio lot. And also they did not even bother to try to make him look wet because he was supposed to just come out of the water. <laughs> I was like, a I know you have to worry about his hair, me. but still like, I'm like, this just looks awful for where he is supposed to be standing and what he's just supposed to have done. Like, honestly, like, Th- someone kind of someone sitting to next point. to me like out loud in that moment like it, it it was like copy and pasted from there's like the roger ebert story of like when they went and saw uh i, I believe it was jaws 4 and michael kane in that movie <laughs> some dude next to me another critic here in atlanta made the same comment of out loud in the theater was just like he's dry his shirt's <laughs> dry as he like climbs out of the water <laughs> yes <laughs> i mean Yes, there's a lot that goes into how that scene ended up looking that bad. But I mean, a lot of it is that kind of green screen. Like that is, I think, the feel that you're talking about that does mm-hmm. sometimes crop up here. Um, I will say, I do think this is getting at perhaps kind of a larger crisis that we're having or kind of an existential crisis that we're having in film. I think we're at a really weird technological point where we can do a lot and we can pretend that it looks okay. And I think we're at the point where we are pretending that it looks much better than it does in a lot of cases. And we will, that's this technology will sort itself out and it will look a lot better in a few years. I think very particularly of, I think it's called volume that they have started using uh, to shoot some things on. I think most prominently the Batman was shot with volume quite a bit. Yeah. It's basically like LED screens instead of a matte painting is essentially the concept from what yeah, i understand it's, it's the technology that was sort of invented for i believe the mandalorian series was sort of the first one that kind of uh incorporated it and now it has as you said sort of become pretty standard for a lot of uh big blockbuster movies yeah or at least it's starting to be used it's very early right. and it's like we're still talking like you're saying it's, with the mandalorian it, we were talking it, the last it, couple of years and it is yeah. a big shift in technology on how we are filming something that would traditionally i think be a green screen right and some stuff looks good on it like mandalorian and the batman movie i think look great on it and that's probably because they're both the same dp who sort of like helped in sort of like design that technology but then there's been other stuff like um i think a couple of the more recent marvel movies like the ant-man movie and i know the most recent thor movie used it and like there was a lot of comments about like oh wow yeah that looks really bad and looks like actors just standing in front of green screens in like 2003 or something like that yeah and this is where i start kind of like going against the grain i I think that's a very good example of what i'm trying to talk about of like i think we are pushing our technology to the point where it will get there i think volume looks Ad every time i've seen it now uh i did not watch the mandalorian um so my i think first encounter with it was in the batman and i had not heard mm-hmm. of it um so i was sit i remember distinctly sitting through the batman and saying this looks flat like this looks awful and it looks like it has no depth and i don't understand why like how is a movie of this size look literally flat it looks like a bad matte painting and then i went and read and i was like oh volume exists and that's when i learned about it so i could tell without knowing that the bat i thought the batman looked terrible and it was because of the scenes in volume that i got that effect uh (laughs) 
the reason I pointed out that last scene in Fast X is as I was watching, I was like, this has no depth, and I wonder if it's with volume. I, I don't think it is. I haven't looked into it at all, but I was like, I had the same feeling of just like, this looks so bad, this might be volume. Uh, and it maybe I just like to blame volume now, because I think it's just such a terrible look to movies. They'll fix it. I think they will fix it. I think it looks awful. And I think a lot of the things that they're trying to use in Fast X is tech that looks awful right now. I, I hope it gets better. I, I hope we swing away from like such bad CGI and just such bad tech stuff as we try to push forward into these huge and bigger blockbusters. Um, but that's what I would identify more as like kind of the crisis. Not really the red notice thing as you were talking about. I think this really falls into the blockbuster type of thing where we are just using tech that we're not ready for. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've talked about it on the podcast before, just this kind of also crisis moment we're in in the effects industry where more movies with very, very heavy amounts of special effects are being put into production and there's not as many effects houses to do that work. And those poor people are being put under like horrible conditions and time crunches and are like coming out and being like, look, sometimes unfinished stuff gets winds up in there because there's just there the, you know, the, the amount of product that needs that kind of of effects work and the datelines that they're needing to meet. It's it's, it is now reached the point where it has exceeded the manpower to be able to, to do that so i i think that's definitely along with what you said kind of adding to it um let's throw up a spoiler alert before we go and kind of briefly i want to get your thoughts on the ending to this movie so i'll throw in a siren right here all right emily what did you think of the big cliffhanger (laughs) (laughs) um so it depends on which cliffhanger you're talking about. So I am the kind of person who never sits for uh, end credit scenes. I know there is an mm-hmm. end credit scene. I just read about it later. I never yes. care enough. Like It's almost always just like some joke or like casting news. And I was like, I just don't care. I'm not going to sit through credits the, for that. The end credit now, scene was spoiled by this, but was like spoiled before the movie even came out to the point that when it came up or like when Dwayne Johnson didn't appear in the movie, I was like, weird. I wonder what that whole news leak was about and then the, that was the end credit scene is like oh okay so there'll be some scene in a future movie where him and bendy's will be in the the same scene together but they're they'll be stitched in there somehow they'll be red noticed <laughs> yes uh, into the same movie <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> um the, now the last scene of the movie proper mm-hmm. i assume is what you're talking about as the quote-unquote cliffhanger yes otherwise this movie just kind of ends like right it doesn't really have a cliffhanger it has a really awkward ending with like at least dom's storyline of just like yes they go down they dante jason momoa's character tries to blow up dom and his kid on the dam and he rides down the dam as it's blowing up and then ends up in a green screen hellscape of nowheresville <laughs> and dante's just like i'm gonna come back basically so it's just like and then like now, Dante ignites, says, now it's time to kill you. Yes, that's right, what it is. Ignites more bombs, and it's literally like like Saturday morning cartoon special of Vin Diesel doing a like, what? Up at the screen, yes. and we see the bombs ticking, and then like it's like, cut. Like, it's really yes. trying to have a kind of like, as, a, as, as this was the other thing that made me, that really made me think of the Infinity War comparison of trying to have this like big mic drop in cliffhanger moment that, that, didn't really did not work in in this movie at all and then obviously there's the other aspect to the cliffhanger which is michelle rodriguez and charlie's throne 
escape their uh, Antarctica prison cell. And Why did I just say, before you get any farther, <laughs> the funniest moment of the entire uh, Fast X to me was the time where <laughs> Michelle Rodriguez pops out of the of the bunker and you find out and she looks around and she's just in the, she's just in clearly like a, a frozen landscape and all of a sudden it just pops up, Antarctica! And right. I was like, that's a good joke. <laughs> and then like, she has to like go like, back down the and- <laughs> stairwell and like Charlie's <laughs> Throne is still there, is like putting on snow boots and stuff. Yeah, like the <laughs> popping up of Antarctica as the location was just a perfect joke to me sorry continue <laughs> no that was a very funny moment um yeah so all, all of a sudden michelle rodriguez is like well how, how are we going to get out of antarctica and then uh a submarine emerges from the ice it's the submarine from fast eight i believe and this was the moment when i was like oh it's um the, so this is where dwayne johnson is going to be he's going to be on the and it's not going to make sense because we've reached a point in these movies where people who were trying to kill each other or didn't get along in previous movies are just sort of like, yeah, bro, I got you and like pats each other on the back and goes on. Um, and the hatch opens and out pops, uh, Gal Gadot, Wonder Woman star Gal Gadot, who, uh, died in fast and furious six. And as you mentioned earlier, whether it be Han, whether it be Letty, the series has a, uh, history of bringing people back from the dead. Um, that normally I've kind of rode with as part of the just sort of campy ridiculousness of these movies that they're basically like soap operas and cars. But I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit of just sort of like uh, in a movie where it already felt like there were kind of no stakes to this movie. This is really like we we can't let anything rest like Paul Walker's the only one dead and he's not. I mean, He's unfortunately dead in real life, but like is not even dead in these movies. We always have to have the one awkward line and everything where it's like, well, maybe we should get Brian. No, he's safe. We have to keep him there, even though every other person we've ever interacted is being hunted down. That That's just sort of a, their commitment to that sort of once beautiful plot line of Fast 7 but the need to kind of readdress it all is funny but I, what did you think about uh, Gal Gadot returning and and just the idea of like no one's really dead in these movies and everyone kind of just like can come back for whatever magical real reason so um Gal Gadot is a an actress I would say kind of in the Brie Larson vein of how I think of her I was like I don't think she's ever been very good um in blockbusters uh, I can't think of a time she's ever been really good kind of period. I, I'm not. I, I liked her in the first work, Wonder Woman movie, but beyond the first Wonder Woman movie, I would agree with you. I would not say I have particularly en- enjoyed her in much of anything. I think she's functional in both Wonder Woman movies. Like, okay. I think she's fine. I think, however, she pairs perfectly and is carried by Chris Pine in both of those movies. Yes. I think he is a standout performer there and he is carrying kind of a. So she, because he's doing so much work, I think she kind of gets by with just being, eh, uh, which I think is the best she ever does. It's kind of like how Superman as a character isn't that interesting, but Clark Kent is and sort of like the, you know, the, the Clark Kent, you need the Clark Kentness to sort of balance out how kind of like straight and kind of boring Superman is and sort of like that, that kind of being the her and Chris pine dynamic of like he he kind of has to be the personality because she has to be the sort of like square jawed hero of of of, she doesn't have the clark kent thing to pull out of her back pocket is i guess what 
what I was kind of getting at. But I, I a thousand yeah. percent agree with you. I hundred, I, I agree that dynamic. I, I don't think she is a good straight man. As mm-hmm. a, I think there's a way to do the straight man performance very well, and I don't think she brings much to it. I think Chris Pine really just carries her along. Um, I, again, like I don't think she's terrible. I think she's just like kind of bland. Mm-hmm. Um, in these movies, in the Fast movies, in, in the Fast and Furious movies in particular, I think she gets kind of lost. I often forget that she was a character at all. I will say the I one good thing until she, she brought, popped up here. <laughs> yeah. The one good thing, the one reason I do sometimes remember that she exists is because she is the reason for the greatest line in the entire series, uh, which is, I believe, the first movie that she was in, which I think is the fourth. I could be forgetting. That sounds right. So basically, Vin Diesel as Dom is attempting to hit on her, um, and he says, I appreciate a good body regardless of the make. Which, in context now, makes Dom pansexual, if you read that correctly. He's saying he doesn't care about the make of the body as long as you look good. Uh-huh. Never have addressed that ever again, or how weird of a line that is, or that you can interpret it that way. But I will interpret it that way forever. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm, I completely forgot she was in these these movies, and I agree she kind of fell into the background. But yeah, it was just a weird thing of oh well because she was in these movies before she was in wonder woman so it it feels like this sort of weird reverse engineering thing of like oh shoot we killed off the actress that eventually became wonder woman we just need we need to bring her back like we cannot not have wonder woman in the these these movies um and i don't know just for me it it just sort of i think it gets to some of the problems I have with as this series has become more and more cartoonish is I, is just this feeling of like, well, kind of does any of this really matter anymore? And like, I like these movies when they're not super serious, but like, I want there to be some sense of danger and, and stakes for the characters, which is, you know, why, why, I, you know, my favorites are like fast five or um fast seven is because they, they have some of those kind of, emotional stakes to them that now it just sort of feels like yeah it's just sort of it's a reunion special anyone can come back that you know has ever been around i think that is 100 percent fair <laughs> as a cri- cri- criticism of this movie uh, to her specifically coming back i will say the surprise of it was not that her character could come back we- we've thrown that any mm-hmm. character could come back at any time that doesn't surprise me honestly what surprised me was she has time for this. Like she actually signed up and made time. Like that's what I was surprised about, to be quite honest. Maybe the DC and they're like trying to redo everything. She right. has some time cut out and she decided to go do it. I don't know. It was honestly just like a scheduling surprise of me just being like, she's doing movies again. Okay. I guess she has time. Um, whatever. Maybe she'll show up for a couple scenes and be gone again. Yeah. Uh, who knows? Um, it'll, it'll be I like, I don't know other... if you saw the, the Shazam sequel this year, which if you didn't, then I, I don't think you should, but she pops in there <laughs> for like a cameo with the same energy of just sort of like, oh yeah, they're filming around the corner. Yeah, I, I can get an outfit on. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll help him out. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, I do feel like, again, not super up to date on movie news, but I, I do understand that they're kind of revamping the DC universe mm-hmm. at this point. And I feel like she is one of the one few actors who are definitely going to be coming back in their role. So I think they're kind of hanging their hat on her to make sure that she, you know, pops up in those movies. That wouldn't surprise me to make sure there is some continuity. Um, mm-hmm. I think the other thing that we have to kind of touch on uh, is terms of the ending of this movie is... <laughs> 
again, speaking of deaths that will definitely never stick, a plane goes down with all of my favorite characters. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, uh, Look, Roman got Tyrese smushed Ludacris, by a car in F9 yeah. <laughs> and all like, of the just walked out of the car. Those, yeah. Yeah. All of them go down allegedly in a plane crash. And it is the most fake, like, oh, they're going to walk away from that. Like, if you look at the last shot of all of them, they are saying, oh my gosh, there's a bomb coming at our plane. And they're running towards the back of the plane. There is a car sitting in the back of that plane. Mm. Like, they're going to hop into that car and be out of that plane before it exploded into the mountain. It was the most obvious thing, but they left it like it was a cliffhanger, like they might be dead. Right, right. Yeah, it's... I don't necessarily have a problem with a, a cliffhanger in the sense of like, look, we know these characters are going to come back. There's There's a Fast and Furious 11, but it's seeming like the spot at which the choices of where to sort of leave the audience hanging didn't even sort of like make emotional sense in the movie. They just sort of seemed like random kind of like, and tune in next week. Or like if, if you ever watched lost, like the, the sort of cliffhangers they would leave at a commercial break or something like that before you would, you know, the, the they seemed all very minor. They didn't seem like these kind of cataclysmic things. Yeah, and that kind of led to, like, I think the, like, kind of letting the air out feeling of the ending to me instead mm-hmm. of feeling like it went out with a bang. Um, I will say something we haven't touched on and something I just want to kind of mention at least briefly uh, before we wrap this up is all of these kind of, as we were talking about, like, deaths and resurrections that is becoming almost an in-joke within the series. Mm-hmm. One of the big turns in Fast 10, I would argue, is that uh, I think they are positioning these movies no longer as superhero movies. Uh, I think we are starting to transition into them being religious figures and perhaps martyrs. There is, there's always been like religion hanging around in these movies. And for, for an American blockbuster movie, pretty prominently, because pretty much no other American blockbuster even touches specifically on any religion. And these have always been overtly kind of Christian movies, or at least Mm -hmm. the characters are Christian and make nods to it. Um, This movie though, takes it really ramps that up. They save the Vatican in, in Rome. Um, and then there becomes like some very strange imagery with particularly Dom. And I'm like, we're getting into some really like vague ideas of, I think, martyrdom. And as you were saying, resurrection that is already in the series. I think they may start all picking this up and trying to make them into literal like religious figures now. We're, we're just going to see a, a like increased number of uh, like christ pose shots of of vin diesel which like they're there because obviously he wears that kind of like cross around his necklace there's a lot of kind of like juxtaposition of like him with that necklace and sort of like close-ups on that neck and so yeah i it didn't hadn't occurred to me while watching but now sort of thinking back there's there's a lot in the movie that is and it this i think feeds into like vin diesel's what i perceive as sort of his interest and idea in these movies is i i would not be surprised if like what you said this this concluding trilogy or whatever this is most meant to be at this point like becomes about like dom toretto the the martyr for like his entire family or something like that jason momoa has a literal line i believe is in the quote-unquote climax they intended mm-hmm. it to be a climax of this movie where they he actually talks to says a line to dom that this is how you be a martyr you can't just you have to either uh perform a miraculous act or you have to die i think is the line or something like that he literally defines how one has to be a martyr and it does it in reference to dom it is it 
there are some moments that is really overt on kind of Christian symbology and Christian language that I think they really are trying to transition these guys from superheroes to martyrs. So I guess everyone who's coming back is going to be a saint. (laughs) Saint Giselle. Well, uh, Emily, I look forward to the uh, giant Christ-like statue of Dominic Toretto that will be uh, over the LA skyline. It'll be the, the, <laughs> the tallest thing in Los Angeles in a few years. Um, thank you, as always, for coming on as, as we discuss family and cars and going vroom vroom on the interstate. Uh, next week on the podcast, summer movie season continues with um, the Little Mermaid remake, which... I saw the day after Fast and Furious and um, more like the little meh made. We'll leave it there and (laughs) discuss that next week.